0: Welcome to the Richardson Seventh-day Adventist podcast. I'm so excited for you to join us. Each week, we'll bring you a sermon from one of our ongoing series. So enjoy and let's get to it. My name is uh, Timothy R. Pernick. I am a chiropractor from the state of Florida. I'm pleased to be with you all on this Religious Liberty Sabbath. I hope and pray that you all be blessed. We're going to be discussing religious freedom today. On January 13th, there was a ruling by the Supreme Court, and there were two separate cases. One was whether or not OSHA had the ability to mandate that everyone, every private business with 100 more employees uh, had to require them to be vaccinated or for the work. And the second aspect was whether or not the Secretary of Health and Human Services at the behest of the Biden administration had the authority to require that any facility that takes money from the federal government should require that all of their employees be vaccinated. On January 13th, the ruling finally came in the court felt that the stay or the in, or sorry the injunction against the osha mandate should be allowed to continue whereas the uh, injunction against the, uh, health, the secretary of health and human services mandate for healthcare workers they believe that, that uh, they believe that that should continue in other words that the mandate for healthcare workers should continue and not be stopped Now, here's the thing I want you to understand is that this has implications right now for healthcare workers, and this issue about vaccine mandates is not over. It's just not over. They're still going to hear these cases again. This is not the end of it. And there are many who believe that this might be a religious freedom issue, indeed, that was brought up as part of the problem. But I want you to take a step back and ask yourself this. Does the Supreme Court, is it the final authority On matters of conscience. Well, all you have to do is look at the history of the Supreme Court. At one time, the Supreme Court said that if a slave ran away from the South to the North, that the Fugitive Slave Law Act, which was passed in the South, that was allowed because, after all, someone who ran from the South to the North was nothing more than property. That was the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court also in Buck v. Bell, a case which decided, based on the Jacobson case, which is in 1905, Buck v. Bell decided that the state, the government, had a right to forcibly sterilize people that they deemed defective. Look it up. Still good law. Buck v. Bell made it the Supreme Court. I want to submit to you today that we as Christians have a higher authority than the Supreme Court when it comes to conscience. And when we consult this, this is how we are to understand it, and that is precisely what we are going to do today. Because we believe in Romans 13 that we should submit to the powers of government. But we also believe in what Jesus Christ tells us, that we should love the Lord, our God, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and all of our mind. That is the higher power. So how do we reconcile all this? Well, We turn to the Word of God, and before we do that, let us bow our heads for a word of prayer. Gracious and Heavenly Father, I ask for your Holy Spirit as we go through the sacred scriptures that we may understand these things and how to apply them in this time. We thank you so much, Lord, for the opportunity to share these things, and we pray that others will be blessed by it. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. If you have your Bibles, we'll go to Romans chapter 13. In discussions that I've had with people on the mandate, they have told me, they said, hey, this is not a religious freedom issue. That the states have absolute authority to do what you say they don't have the authority to do. And that is to put something in your arm that you may or may not want because they have decided to do it because they're protecting society. And they will cite this passage. And so we should read it to understand whether or not these things be so. Romans 13 verse 1 Says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authority, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring them judgment on themselves. For the rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise of the same. But he For he is God's minister for you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger, to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing render therefore all their due taxes to whom taxes are due customs to whom customs fear to whom fear honor to whom honor and in case you think that's just a one off let's go to let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2 1 Peter chapter 2 1 Peter chapter two, and listen to what Peter says, very similar to what Paul says in Romans thirteen. This is what Peter says, second Peter, first Peter chapter two, verse starting in verse thirteen. Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man, for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using your liberty as a cloak for vice, but as servants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now when you hear this, you say, well, it sounds like if this is what the state has decided, that's what we should do. If the state says it's for our own good and for the good of those around us, why not do it? But as I said to you, we have a higher authority and we need to make sure that this is exactly what the scriptures say. Why did Paul and Peter even write this, these passages here? Maybe it will help us to understand the context for which they wrote this, because I think that's deeply important into interpreting how we understand Romans 13 and how we understand 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's go to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, Acts chapter 18. We go to Acts chapter 18 and we go to verse 2. And as I go through these next verses, you, will, you may not be able to keep up, but you may want to write them down. But we'll go here, Acts chapter 18, verse 2. Now I want you to understand something. The book that we read, Romans, was written to Romans, Christians and Jews living in Rome. And when he talks about them being submissive to government you need to keep this in mind 18 verse 2 notice what happens here he says and he found Paul a certain Jew named Aquila born in Pontus who recently co- who recently come from Italy and his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and he came to them wait a second Paul's in Corinth and he meets these guys there, but they're originally from Rome. Why did Claudius kick the Jews and Christians out of Rome? Remember that both Jews and Christians worshipped together. They worshipped at the synagogue. They kept the same day. They ate the same diet. And they worshipped the same God. Just a fact of church history. Why is it that the Jews were expelled from Rome? Well, Part of it is because they had no respect for the laws of Caesar. And how do we know this? Suetonius, the Roman historian, tells us that in in his lives of the Caesars under Claudius, he tells us that the Jews constantly made disturbances. That means that they rioted at the instigation of one Crestus. Scholars believe that this one Crestus actually is a gloss on the name of Christ. In other words, one of the reasons why the Jews were kicked out of Rome, because they were constantly riding over a contention for Jesus. doesn't mean they were all on the side of Jesus. It meant that they were upset at the preaching of Jesus, and they began to riot, and Claudius said, you're out. What else do we see in Acts chapter 13, verse 50? We find that the Jews go to Antioch, and they stir up the people to braze persecution against the preaching of Christ. In Acts 14, verse four, they cause disturbances among the Greeks in Iconium against the apostles, so much so that they stoned Paul, thinking that he was dead. In Acts 17, verse five, they gathered a mob and created an uproar in Thessalonica to stop the preaching about Jesus. In Acts 17, when they found out that the apostles had went to Berea, they followed them there and they began to riot and stir up the crowd. So the apostles had to flee there. There was no law that they would respect when it came to their fanaticism for their faith. They would do whatever they could to silence the opposition. In Acts chapter 21, they seized Paul and while he was in the temple, and they began to riot and beat him to death. And when the Romans came in, when Lysias, the commander of the Roman army, came in, he had to rescue Paul, and they still attempted to assassinate him. In Romans, in Acts chapter, in Acts chapter 23, the rioting of the Jews and the lawlessness was so well known that when Lysias speaks to Paul, he says, art not thou Aren't not thou that Egyptian who fled to the wilderness with a thousand assassins? You see, when Paul and Peter are writing to the church, to both Jews and Christians, are like, Guys, this rioting, this violence, it's got to go. This is not the way to commend ourselves to the world by rioting and violence and silencing others that we disagree with. This is not it. Remember, it was also the Jews. What did they do? When they were wanting to put Jesus to death, they went to Pontius Pilate and they said, we, he, they, he says, we would not have brought him to you if he were not a malfactor. And what does Pilate say? He goes, he said to them, he goes, well, you have your own laws. You see to it. And what did they remind him of? They said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death at every single step of the way. The Jewish church at that time had no respect for the laws. As a matter of fact, this is how they lose their nation in 70 A.D. They riot, they murder, they fight. And what happens? The Romans come in and destroy their entire nation in 70 A.D. And not content with that, a few years later, they do the same thing. And this time they are slaughtered at Masada in 133 A.D. They didn't learn the lesson that Paul was trying to tell them both, Jews and Christians, that you should submit to government, that you should pay your taxes. I hope this helps you to understand the context with this is written, but what about for conscience sake? What about when you believe that something is right, and you believe what the government has said or what the powers have be is wrong? Well, good news is we can also go to the scriptures to find this out. So if you have your Bibles, let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 14. 1 Samuel chapter 14. Now I want you to understand something here. In 1 Samuel chapter 14, Saul is king. Was Saul Saul elected in a contested election where people think that the votes were stolen? Was Saul elected like that? No. Was Saul elected when people thought that there might have been Russian collusion And he became king, right? Did that happen? That didn't happen that way. Saul was chosen by God, right? God actually went to Samuel and said, that's the guy right there. That's how it was. Saul was the authority in Jerusalem. He was the authority. Actually, this is before Jerusalem, in Hebron. He was the authority there. He was the leader. He was chosen by God. And so what do we have and First Samuel fourteen. Let me build the context here. The context actually starts in First Samuel verse 13, or chapter thirteen. And what happens? There's a war between the Philistines and the Israelites. And what does Jonathan do? Jonathan sneaks up onto the side of a ridge and he climbs up there with his armor bearer and they fight and they have this great victory and the Lord starts to shake the earth and the Philistines become afraid and the Israelites come out from their hiding places and they begin to drive the Philistines out of the land. And Saul was so excited about this that he said, all right, let's do this. Let's drive the Philistines out of the land. And so what does he do? He makes a decree. And the decree the decree is... He goes. He goes. uh, Unless he goes, we will not eat any food unless I have vengeance upon my enemies. And so here we are, in chapter fourteen, and Saul makes his oath. This is verse twenty-four. And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had placed the people under an oath, saying, "Cursed is man who eats any food until evening." Before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. I, I misspoke. The, the, the context was earlier in 14. The the, the point in, uh, that I wanted to make in 1 Samuel chapter 13 was that Saul had disobeyed God, and because he had disobeyed God, God was not going to bring the victory through him, but rather through his son, Jonathan. And zealous for that glory for himself, he made this decree. He made this decree, let me ask you this, was this decree lawful? Yeah, it was. They're, they're, they didn't have a legislature per se where you had to get a, a majority vote and then it went through both houses and then you know, then the president signed it. Whatever Saul said, particularly in these matters, was law. He was the ultimate authority besides God himself in the nation of Israel. This is a lawful order. Lawful. Well, what happens? We know that Jonathan does what? He's hungry. He's he's walking by, sees a, a honeycomb down on the ground, right? A beehive. Dips this tip of the bottom of his staff in it, tastes it, and his eyes brighten up because he had nothing to eat. This was a lawful order, but it was a bad order. It was a very bad law. And now Jonathan is guilty Of breaking the king's decree. And so what happens next? The people finally get something to eat after they, and they don't even cook their food. They're, they're, they're eating uh, meat mixed with blood. And this is a great sin. And Saul, instead of realizing that, hey, this is my fault. I'm the one who brought Israel to this point. He decides that it's time to have a trial. Let me ask you this. Is the trial lawful? Yeah, it is. Saul is king. He gets to decide who gets to go on trial. Who has to face their accusers and what evidence is presented? This is lawful, and so Saul decides that there should be a trial. And so he, in order to find out the reason why this great sin of Israel happened, they cast lots. In verse forty-one, therefore Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, "Give me a perfect lot." So Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, "Cast lots between me, between my son Jonathan and me." So Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey at the end of the rod that was in my hand. So now I must die. And Saul answered and said, God, do so and more also for you shall surely die, Jonathan. Is that a lawful order? That's a lawful order. Did Jonathan deserve to die according to the law of Saul? Yes. Did Jonathan deserve to die according to the law of heaven? No. But King Saul was acting as a tyrant. He was established by God. He was chosen by God. He was the lawgiver in Israel. Everything he did according to the law was legal. But what happens? But the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die, who has accomplished this great salvation in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair on his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. What does this tell us about government? Government. Even when the government, even with the man who sits on the throne was selected by God, there's still limits to his power. Even when he makes a lawful decree, says, you must do this or else. And even if you disobey that lawful decree, God still says, no. No. When it came to conscience, what happens the men of Israel rose up and said, you are not going to kill Jonathan. You're not going to do this. I don't care what authority you think you have. You have no right to put someone to death who has done nothing wrong. Your law is what's wrong. And they withstood Saul and he had to back down. If God-fearing people can resist God's own anointed, remember David wouldn't even want to kill Saul. And remember when he cut A part of his garment off, he felt bad and wanted to repent because he said, how can I do this to the Lord's anointed? Even if it's the Lord's anointed, if he were to put forth a law that is against the, a godly duty to say no. You have a godly duty to resist just as they did there. But our government is not anointed by God as King Saul was. Which leads us to look into this a little bit further. Sometimes when we talk about the issue of conscience, we go, well, you know, this whole thing, religious liberty, you know, this isn't, a, uh, this, isn't a conscience, this isn't a conscience issue when it comes to the government wanting to put something into your arm or something into your body to protect people. I want you to understand something, that sometimes when it comes to religious liberty, it's not always black and white. It really isn't. There's sometimes even in the Bible where we look at these examples of religious liberty and it's still not black. Let's turn with me to Daniel, since you are all doing the Daniel fast. This will look familiar. Let's go to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1 in verse 5. First thing I have to point out to you, I have to ask is this. Was it God's will that Babylon would conquer Judah, and well, Israel technically, but Judah, which is more closely. Was it God's will that his people be conquered? Yes. All you got to do is read Jeremiah. All you got to do is read Isaiah. That's his will. Was it God's will that his people be brought to Babylon? Yes, that was his will. Read Jeremiah, read Isaiah. That was his will. They had sinned against him. It was his will that they're there. It was his will that Nebuchadnezzar would be on the throne. It was his will that Nebuchadnezzar would be set up. That's his will. That doesn't mean everything that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to do was good. Verse 5, And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's delicacies, of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so they might end of that time that they might serve before the king. Now, now, from the from those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. He gave Daniel Belteshazzar to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael mesach and to Azariah Abednego. Verse eight. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. "...with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself." And of course, we understand that there's a 10-day trial. But let me ask you this. Was every bit of food that the king ate a violation of Leviticus 11? No. I'm sure that there were meats that were clean. I'm sure there was fish that was clean. I'm sure some of it was prepared in a way that was decent. Why can't, why couldn't Daniel and his friends go along to get along? Couldn't they just move some food on their plate? If the wine was fresh, freshly pressed grapes, it was most likely unfermented, anyways. Why couldn't they just go along after all their captors? Why not show themselves that they're a part of the team? Why not show themselves that they're willing to go along to get along to be friends with the king of Babylon who they are at his mercy? I mean, listen, if you think this is crazy, all you have to do is read what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verses 4. What does he say? He talks to people. He goes, look, if in the marketplace you buy meat sacrificed to idols, don't worry about it. What is an idol? It's nothing. It has no, it has no eyes. It has no heart. It has no soul. It's nothing. So don't eat it. Don't let your conscience be bothered by it. And he even calls those who have problems with eating food that they buy in the market, which was sacrificed to idols, he even calls them weak. Are we to suppose that Daniel and his friends were extremists? Were they weak? No. They were exercising their conscience. And here's an interesting point. Even if one side says, yeah, I don't care. I'll go get the shot. What do I care? And the other side says, I'm not putting that in my body. That's that's not tested. It's not clean. There's a lot of problems with it. Guess what? Both can fellowship together in Christ. Not all religious liberty issues are black and white, just as it isn't with Daniel and his friends. Yes, the wine, if it's intoxicating, absolutely not. If the meat is unclean, absolutely not. But they wouldn't even eat clean meat, which was sacrificed to idols. And therefore, many of us today are doing the Daniel diet. But when we look at this, what about what about with in the book of Esther? If you go to Esther, chapter three. What about another example of some things that just aren't that clear, and yet are a matter of conscience? Esther. Chapter 3, starting in verse 2. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. And the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And it happened that when they would spoke to him daily, that he would not listen to them. And he told it, and they told it to Haman to see whether or not Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. Verse 6, But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him, of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. Now think about this. One guy, one guy decides not to bow down to the prime minister who was lawfully chosen, who was lawfully given the signet ring, and where the king made a lawful order saying you should pay homage to him. Mordecai refused to do it. And because of this one man's disobedience, guess what happened? The whole nation was to be destroyed. Imagine that. Would we get upset if one of our members said, I'm not taking this procedure. And the government said, well, all your churches are closed. We'd say, how dare you? Imagine how Mordecai must have felt when the weight of the entire nation rested on the fact that he didn't bow down. Now, there's different arguments of why he didn't bow down. But let me ask you this, when the 12 patriarchs, when and they weren't 12 at the time, but when, when, when Jacob's sons went to Egypt to go get grain, and they sat before Zaphnath paneah what did they do? What did they do? They bowed down, didn't they? They bowed down to Zaphnath paneah Who happened to be who? Joseph. They bowed to him down on a number of occasions. Why is it that Mordecai's example is different from theirs? They didn't know it was Joseph. And probably if they thought it was Joseph, they wouldn't have bowed down anyways. Thus fulfilling the dream. Did not Daniel pay homage to Nebuchadnezzar? You can read what he says after the the dream in Daniel chapter 6. Telling him, Lord, this dream is for your enemies and those who are against you. King, live forever. Did not Daniel pay homage to Nebuchadnezzar? Did not the patriarchs pay homage to zaphnath the prime minister of Egypt? Why is Mordecai's example different? It's his conscience, isn't it? It's his conscience. Based on his conscience. Even when we have examples in the scripture where they're not exactly the same got a question for you, and I think I know the answer, but I'll ask anyways. How many of you are here Amish? Go ahead and raise your hand. Right. I didn't think so, right? We're at a different church today. Anyone believe like the Amish? No, we don't, right? Right. Nothing against them, but we don't believe the way that they believe. And we probably wouldn't be streaming this, right? (laughs) So, here's the thing. Has anyone heard of the case Yoder v. Wisconsin? Yoder v. Wisconsin. You should. You should know it. The decision, so what happened was the Amish have this idea that they want to raise their children according to the dictates of their faith. Amen. We can agree with that. And to do that, they believe that children should have education to about sixth grade. They should learn how to read, write, and do some math. And then after that, you're working on the farm with dad and you're working with mom, period. That's what you're learning to do. You're gonna learn how to have a skill and you're gonna be self-sufficient and you're gonna provide for yourself and you're gonna to learn to live without the conveniences of modern life. And the government of Wisconsin said, you know, this isn't helpful for us because we have an interest in your children. Our interest is that your children learn how to be good American citizens, that they learn what the Department of Education wants them to learn, whether it be on race, whether it be on gender, whether it be on sexuality. We believe that they need to learn these things, and you're not a whole, heart, not whole person unless you get our education. And they said, moreover, if the Amish ever leave their community, they won't be able to go to college, they'll have to get a GED, and it'll be a great burden on the state of Wisconsin. And so they began to find the Amish saying, your kids need to be in school. Now, do you remember, probably none of us, because this was was a while ago, but do you remember anyone reading anything in Religious Liberty where we were like, we got to stick with the Amish. We got to defend their right to school their kids according to the dictates of their conscience. No, we didn't, sadly. But what ended up happening? The case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court got this one right. And they said that the government has no authority to dictate how children should be educated. And if and if parents want to educate their children at home, then they have the right to do so. And thus bore the homeschooling movement right there. See, if it wasn't for the Amish fighting back, if it wasn't for the Amish resisting, which we didn't join them with it. We didn't stand by them. We didn't, we we're like, yeah, we got your back. We were like, oh yeah, no, do whatever the government says. They fought against it, they stood their ground, a bunch of pacifist people. God bless them. And to this day, we have the right to homeschool because of it. That was the birth of the homeschooling movement. You see, even coming from different faiths and different ideas, that religious freedom is precious. Even if we don't agree. I do think the idea of young men and women learning skills is something that you can find in the book of education it's actually there. And I do agree that being able to work with your hands is something that you find in the Bible. We don't do that anymore. But even if we don't do that, we still should support people who believe that that is the cornerstone of their education based on their faith in God. We don't always agree on certain things, but we should ask for the broadest sense of religious liberty. And we shouldn't say, well, I'm glad it's not not us. We're still good with the government, but those guys are going to have to learn a lesson. No, it should never be like that. I want to bring you to two people, one of them you've heard of, one of them you haven't heard of. And I want you to see the difference of how God blesses, even though they have two different takes on a very critical issue. Has anyone heard of Alvin C. York? Alvin C. York. That's what I thought. Most of us haven't. Alvin C. York... As known, as also affectionately known as Sergeant York. He was a sergeant, and he served in World War I. Has anyone heard of, of Corporal Desmond T. Doss, right? Many people have heard about him, and he served in World War II. Here are some things that both men have in common. Both were deeply committed Christians. One served in World War I, the other served in World War II. Both served in World Wars. Both joined the service because they wanted to help. Both have foundations created in their name. There's, still, there's a Desmond Doss Center, a foundation, and there's an Alvin C. York Center. Both are actually buried in Tennessee. Both of them had movies made about their lives. Desmond Doss has a movie, and Alvin C. York had a movie. It's in black and white, but it's still a movie. Both survived the world wars. Both of them attributed God to their success in surviving the world, world wars. Both of them went into the army with the intent not to kill. Both of them both of them credit God's providence into protecting them. Both of them received the Congressional Medal of Honor. Both of them were actually exposed to machine gun nests and were not hit with a single bullet. But there's a difference between both of these men. Both of them committed Christian. Alvin C. York belongs to a denomination. This is sort of an interesting aspect. Alvin C. York belonged to what was known as Church of Christ and Christian Union. I don't know if they exist anymore. But it was a strict fundamentalist group that believed the Bible is the infallible rule of faith. Sounds good. His, uh, he be- which they believed in no dancing, no drinking, no secular entertainment, and no violence. That's interesting. Sounds familiar. It's a, it, but there was a difference. When Alvin C. York went into the military, they, they were a lot harder on conscientious objectors. Remember, it's not until Desmond Doss goes in there that we're even thinking about conscientious objectors. But Alvin C. York was drafted and he went in and he wanted to help. And he, and he said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to carry a gun, I'm not going to fight. I believe that it's wrong. But he was a crack shot. He grew up in the backwoods and he was an excellent hunter and excellent rifleman. And when they got when they got him on the range, he could hit everything with a rifle. They were deeply impressed. They saw his ability to shoot and so they made him an instructor of fellow soldiers. But he told his superior officers, hey, look, I I don't mind shooting a gun, but I'm not going to shoot anyone in World War I. I don't want to be a part of this. You're going to have to do something else with me. And so what happened is his superior officers talked with him and they shared with him texts from the Bible about how David fought, about how men of faith are men of valor. And they began to get him to think differently about his ideas about war and conscientious objecting. And so they even said, look, Alvin, why don't you go home and you go pray with your pastor? This is something that they wouldn't allow you to do in World War I. Nobody got this except for him. So Alvin went home and he prayed with his pastor. And when he got back, he said, I'm willing to serve and I'm willing to fight. This is what he decided. While he was, while he was in Europe and he was fighting, They were surrounded by by Germans who were shooting at them and gunning them down. So Alvin was able to sneak past the machine guns, crawl around by himself, armed with a rifle and pistol. And he was able to capture a machine gun nest. 132 Germans surrendered to him alone. When they were shooting at him at first, he had such incredible accuracy with his rifle and his pistol that they thought there must have been a whole platoon of USGIs waiting for them in the woods. They didn't realize they were surrendering to one man. Because of this, his his own platoon was saved from being massacred by machine guns because he was able to capture them. This is what he was able to do, and when he was asked about this, he attributed his success to God, and he didn't want to kill anyone else unless they were trying to kill him. Desmond Doss, right? What a different story. Desmond Doss went into the military as a conscientious objector. He decided that he wouldn't even carry a gun. And you could imagine the arguments made to him said, Doss, if you don't carry a gun, what if if a soldier comes into the camp and you don't have a gun? You could save lives by carrying a gun. Don't think about yourself. Don't think about your faith. Think about us. Think about us. You could shoot someone who's trying to shoot your fellow brothers. This is a form of protection, Doss. You're being selfish. And his, and his army, the, the men in his platoon, hated him. Actually, hated him. They didn't even want him there. And he proved himself over and over again, and he loved them, and he tried to take care of them and show, but they still didn't even want him to be there. They even tried to court-martial him. And fortunately, the judges ruled in his favor and said, no, he's going to go. They thought he was the biggest coward. But then they got into the Pacific Theater. And they began to see that Desmond Doss, though without a gun, was not a coward. And his God was real. It was so great that they would wait to do military maneuvers until Desmond Doss was even praying. The one man who tried to get him court-martialed out of the military, Desmond Doss, ended up saving his life. And he attributes his life being saved to this man who wouldn't carry a gun, a man he was trying to throw out of the military. And then, of course, we know about Hacksaw Ridge, where Desmond Doss was under machine gun fire. And in the documentary called Conscientious Objector, they interview the Japanese soldiers on that hill. And they talk about how they would line them up in their sights, and they would go to pull the trigger and the gun would jam. Or that it seemed that somehow the bullets would be pushed away from Desmond Doss, as if an angel was blocking the shots on this man. He saved 75 people. Well, 74, one of them died. All by himself while being shot at the entire time. God delivered him from that. But guess what? God delivered Alvin C. York as well. One carried a gun into battle and shot and killed men to save others. Another refused to carry a gun in battle. Shot no one. Instead himself was exposed to danger and took care of those and he used the healing methods of Jesus and taking care of the sick and wounded, and bringing them to safety. But the question is, who's right? Who's right? The answer is it doesn't matter. It's conscience. Both of the men exercised their conscience, and both were blessed by God. Both of them attributed their congressional medals of honor not to their valor, not to their skill, but to their faith in their Creator. And as we stand here today, whether someone wants the procedure or someone doesn't want the procedure, what we need to unite on is conscience before God. No matter what the Supreme Court says or what they don't say, we take our marching orders from Jesus and we are informed by conscience through the word of God. This is where we should always stand. This is why we stand for religious liberty. This is why we promote it and we want the broadest expression of it because we know what the world looks like when it doesn't have religious freedom. You know, as as we think back to the Supreme Court, and we think uh, to the decision that they made. I was listening to the oral arguments, which were, uh, I believe, that Monday before they made their decision. And I was listening to the oral arguments, and two of the justices were very much afraid, uh, particularly on the issue of the spread of this disease. And they were saying, you know, one of them said, well, we know there's 100,000 children on on ventilators in the hospital. Well, that actually wasn't true. But she really believed that. She really believed that. She was afraid. And the other one said, well, you know, if we don't get all these people working in hospitals shot up, then then we're just going to have death. Everyone's going to die. As smart as those people are and as accomplished as they are, they can still make decisions on bad information they still can make decisions on bad information. Satan wants us to be afraid so that we will turn against each other, so that we'll sacrifice freedom. Let's not fall into that plan. Let's not be made afraid. We have promises in the scripture that the Lord can deliver us from disease. We've seen missionaries go into places where there was endemic disease and they survived. We've seen men who have been shot at with bullets and they've survived. We've seen people who faced cannibals and headhunters and all sorts of terrible calamities and they have survived. If the Lord wants you on that field, there's nothing that the world can do to take you off of it. And this is why you must put your trust in him. Friends, I would encourage you to read the great controversy. I would encourage you to read the chapters at the dawn of the Reformation. I would encourage you to read the light that breaks forth in the Reformation. I would encourage you to particularly concentrate on those. Because the things that we have in religious freedom, once they're taken, they don't go back. It doesn't go back, and we're actually told in prophecy it won't. There was a decision made, there was a a, a court decision made in the state of New York. And what had happened was, is that the the health commissioner, uh, Dr. Emery, had began to forcibly quarantine people in their houses, or what we might consider house arrest. They said, well, there's an outbreak of smallpox somewhere in the vicinity, and so if you don't get the smallpox shot, we're going to quarantine you in your home, and you will not be able to leave, you will not be able to get food. Are they doing something like that? Yes, they are, actually. They're doing something like that now. But they said that you will not be able to do this or that. And And so there was a story about one family. After being quarantined in their house, they actually dug a hole through their wall. And they escaped and they ran to New Jersey to try to get food and shelter. It's crazy to think about it. They eventually came back, had to get the smallpox shot. One man named Smith fought against this. And he said, no, this is wrong. The government doesn't have the right to lock us in our homes until we get a medical procedure. This isn't going to happen. And who knows? I don't even know if the guy was for the vaccine or not. Some evidence suggests that he had already had it, but he wasn't willing to get another booster. How many are we on now? 4? 5? I don't know. But anyways, he wasn't willing to do that. And so what happened was is it went all the way to the court, and the judge looking at the case, he said this. The judge said he says that that in British law and American law, the state does not have a right to force medicine into men. The state does not have right, no matter how you believe about it. They said, and then the judge says this, he says there is more to be feared by the exercise of arbitrary power than all the contagious diseases combined. I have to tell you this, there's no contagious disease that has probably killed more people than government and world wars. We need to fear God first and we need to cherish our liberties and we need to cherish one another exhorting one another that we may not agree on every issue but we stand for each other and our God-given conscience. And with that, let's pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, I thank you for your holy scriptures. I thank you so much for the time that we're living in It is certainly perilous, and there are so many things coming our way. But we need not be taken unaware. We need not be deceived. You have opened all these things to us in your holy word. Help us, Lord, to hide these things in our heart, that we may be ready and sin not against you. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you were blessed by this sermon. So bring a friend, listen. Have a conversation, and remember, you're in our prayers.